Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Marvin Dunn, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Florida International University, who explains why he won't submit to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' censorship of black history and authoritarian attack on public education. Sergio Munoz of Media Matters for America, who discusses voting technology company lawsuits against Fox News lies about the 2020 presidential election and more evidence that Fox hosts deliberately lie to their audience. And Madonna Thunderhawk of the Lakota Law Project, who reflects on the progress made over the past 50 years since the 1973 American Indian Movement occupation of Wounded Knee. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Horrific images of malnourished infants and the elderly have emerged recently from the Yanomami indigenous lands in Brazil's Amazon rainforest that mirror the worst famines seen in Ethiopia and Sudan. The humanitarian disaster in this forest region, however, was not caused by crop failure or war, but by illegal mining and genocidal neglect by the government. An investigation by the Amazon environmental news outlet Suma Uma found 570 infants under the age of 5 had died of preventable diseases. This was a 29% increase from four years earlier. With poor access to food and medicine, babies suffer from pneumonia and diarrhea that become fatal diseases. The primary cause of this preventable illness is an invasion of illegal gold miners who have brought disease, violence, toxic pollution, and environmental degradation. Brazil's previous right-wing authoritarian president, Jair Bolsonaro, had encouraged lawless exploitation of the rainforest by gold miners and loggers, threatening the survival of what biologists call the lungs of the world. The crisis in the nation's biggest indigenous territory is now the first major test of Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, and his commitment to restore the resilience of the Amazon and use the military and police to chase out the miners and thus protect the rainforest and its people. The bankruptcy filing of accused crypto fraudster Sam Bankman-Fried founder of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange, reveals the company's intricate maze of influence. The Intercept reports that the list includes nearly a dozen public relations experts, specialists who generate positive spin in the media on behalf of clients, as well as political consultants, think tanks, and trade groups. Some FTX funds were funneled directly to Democratic Party operations, such as Majority Forward, a dark money group founded to elect Senate Democrats. The bankruptcy filing also listed a donation to the Center for a New American Security, a powerful think tank with ties to both political parties, but known for staffing national security roles in Democratic administrations. The FTX donation came at a time when the organization advocated for weak regulations on cryptocurrency. Since his arrest two months ago, Bankman-Fried has been confined to his parents' Palo Alto home under a $250 million bond. But during that time, he has done media interviews and made calls on encrypted apps. 
In late January, federal prosecutors accused Freed of using the encrypted messaging app Signal to communicate with a possible witness, a violation of his bail conditions that a judge says could send him to jail. The first nationwide U.S. railroad strike in 30 years was averted after President Biden and Congress intervened in December and imposed a settlement without addressing top union demands of short staffing and lack of paid sick days. High-profile train accidents, including the February 3rd derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that exposed thousands of residents to toxic chemicals, has focused public attention on rail industry safety issues. In These Times magazine reports that railroads like Union Pacific, Southern, and CSX operate as de facto monopolies. In 2021, BNSF and Union Pacific each made over $6 billion in profits. In recent years, Norfolk Southern spent twice as much on stock buybacks and dividends as on operations. Many workers and some industry experts say that railroads invest too little back into infrastructure. On October 5th, the Railroad Workers United Union adopted a resolution calling for public ownership of the nation's railroads. The resolution outlines how the rail industry has downsized one-third of its workforce, outraged shippers by jacking up prices, and opposed safety measures. The United Electrical Workers Union issued its own strident call for public ownership, saying nationalization is necessary both to protect workers and to fight climate change. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Florida's extremist right-wing Republican Governor Ron DeSantis prepares to launch his 2024 campaign for president, he's working hard to attract the support of white supremacists, Christian nationalists, and people fearful of America's changing values and demographics. The governor's don't-say-gay-or-trans law blocks teachers from talking about LGBTQ issues or people, further stigmatizing that community. His Stop Woke Act censors honest dialogue about systemic racism, gender, and race discrimination in workplaces and classrooms. The law effectively discourages teachers from talking about black history, including America's Jim Crow era, slavery, or lynching. Florida teachers now face third-degree felony charges for using books or literature in their classrooms not approved by the state. More recently, DeSantis has prohibited Florida high schools from using the College Board's Advanced Placement African-American Studies course, saying it violates a state prohibition on the teaching of critical race theory. In his attempt to attract support from anti-vaxxers, DeSantis is convening a grand jury to investigate any and all wrongdoing with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. While DeSantis was re-elected in November by a 15% margin, Teachers, students, and civil rights leaders are now organizing protests and school walkouts to oppose the governor's attack on public education. Your reporter spoke with Marvin Dunn, professor emeritus of psychology at Florida International University, one of eight plaintiffs in a lawsuit 
against DeSantis's Stop Woke Act. Here, Dr. Dunn, who's taught for over 40 years, discusses the lawsuit and his vow to defy the governor's censorship of America's history of segregation, discrimination, and violence against communities of color. It's really a kind of low-handed approach to trying to, to acquire the White House. This is not about black history. This is not about AP courses. This is about Ron DeSantis wrapping up the extreme right wing of the Republican Party so that he can be the one who comes out with the nomination and then to carry this whole thing about woke and suppressing progressive education, progressive thought in our country uh, into, into the mire. Professor Dunn, tell our listeners a bit about the lawsuit that you're a part of with, with seven others. There are seven of us in the university system in Florida who are saying we cannot, we can't teach under this law. They're telling us that we can talk about slavery, for example, but we have to talk about it objectively. I don't, I've been teaching for 40 years. I was teaching before DeSantis was born. I don't know how to talk about slavery objectively. I don't know how to talk about an enslaved woman having a child snatched from her breast and sold away without some sense that that was wrong, that was evil. But in Florida now, under DeSantis, for a teacher to say that that was wrong, that was evil, anything beyond the facts of that child being snatched away, they say is indoctrination. And that is where we are in Florida. Anything that gives the the teacher's opinion about an act being evil, wrong, is indoctrination. We can't talk, for example, about the Holocaust. We can't talk about children being burned in ovens in Eastern Europe uh, without saying it was evil. But it was evil. We can't say it without breaking the law and being at risk of being fired. We can't talk about the dispossession of Native Americans in their lands by whites for the benefit of white settlement without being accused of indoctrinating students. So this is coming, America. This is coming to your listeners. This is in Florida now, but DeSantis intends to be president, and he intends to bring these same anti-woke policies to the American educational system. Stunning. You know, when you talk about slavery, the Holocaust, what apparently is being said here in this legislation is you have to present both sides the pro-Holocaust and the anti-Holocaust, or the pro-slavery and anti-slavery sides in your curricula. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Exactly. There is no <laughs> there is no pro-Holocaust side. There is no both sides on this issue. Uh, the problem, I think, that DeSantis has keyed into is that white America feels itself at threat from brown and black people becoming the dominant uh, group in this country. And what we're hearing and feeling and seeing now is a right-wing reaction to the inevitable, the inevitable browning of America. Professor Dunn, tell us about the penalties involved in this legislation. What are teachers or professors in the state university system or state public schools jeopardizing when they defy these laws? I hear it's a felony. Excellent question. Uh, to have a, a, a book in a high school, a public school, uh, that has not been approved by a media specialist, a librarian, uh, is a third-degree felony. You could lose your license. 
the state is very anxious to say, well, you, you, don't go, you won't go to jail, DeSantis says, but you could lose your license. You could lose your ability to make a living if you have a book in your classroom that has not been approved by a media specialist. Now, in Duval County, for example, Jacksonville, a very large county in our state, they now have 1.6 million books that must be approved by media specialists or librarians uh, before they can be accepted into schools in Duval County. Can you imagine how long it's going to take Mm. to go through 1.6 million books to be sure that they can be admitted into the school system? It is going to be a, not going to be, it already is, a tragic tragic imposition upon public education by politics. This man is running for president. He's using education as his bully pulpit. And frankly, I think he stepped into it because most Americans, white, black, conservative, progressive, do not want the government telling professors like me and the other seven in our lawsuit, do not want the government telling us what we can and cannot teach. That's how Hitler did it. That's how Stalin did it. That's how Castro did it. Americans are opposed to this. And I think that this is going to cost the Republican Party across the country in a very, very big way. Many people are looking at what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida as an example of fascism. What are some of your thoughts about opposition? I know that uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and a lot of other civil rights leaders have recently held a protest in Florida against these policies of Ron DeSantis. What's going on in terms of organizing aggressive opposition to what DeSantis is doing in the schools? I think that we're going to see uh, a tremendous awakening of liberal, progressive uh, Americans, black, white, of every ilk, coming forward to make sure that this DeSantis assault on freedom does not stand. People are coming down to the ramparts in Florida. We are not going to stand for this. That was Marvin Dunn professor emeritus of psychology at Florida International University. Learn more about the lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' Stop Woke Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After the 2020 presidential election, Fox News spread all manner of disinformation, repeating Donald Trump's big lie that millions of fraudulent votes had been cast resulting in his re-election defeat. Fox News' false charge that two election technology companies, Smartmatic and Dominion, had secretly employed software to flip Trump votes to Biden votes, resulted in two multi-million dollar lawsuits against the Fox network and its owner, Rupert Murdoch. Through discovery in Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit, The court made public dozens of Fox News on-air hosts' internal text messages. Those messages clearly revealed that Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram were keenly aware of the lies being pushed by Trump and his allies, asserting that the election was rigged, but nonetheless enthusiastically promoted those lies to millions in their audience. Communications between the hosts revealed that their overriding concern was losing audience share to more radical right-wing news channels, resulting in a decrease in Fox stock price and their demand that a Fox fact-checker, who called out their lies, be fired. Your reporter spoke with Sergio Munoz, Media Matters for America's Vice President of Research and Policy. Here he discusses what this lawsuit has confirmed 
about Fox News operating as a propaganda arm of the Republican Party and the danger of a major network weaponizing toxic disinformation that provokes political violence, such as what the nation witnessed in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. I'm sure no one's surprised when we've been warning for years that Fox News is basically a propaganda outlet, not a true news outlet, a propaganda outlet pretty much in cahoots with the Republican Party. We've been saying that forever, and that's based on our observation, 20 years of observation and analysis and research. But what was in this public version of the lawsuit was was proof. This was the receipts. I mean, it is just very illustrative of how much propaganda operation they were. And specifically to the Dominion case, we have plenty of text messages and depositions of them admitting from the very beginning, producers, reporters, pundits, some of their top names on primetime, that they knew this was all a lie. We have confirmations. We have texts from Tucker Carlson to their producers, to Laura Ingram, to the producers, to executives at Fox News who knew this was all a lie. Not just election conspiracy theories in general, but specifically what they were saying about Dominion. Um, So right there, you have in this public version of this motion for summary judgment, you have the proof right in front of you that actual malice has been met. They acted not only in actual disregard for the truth, they knew the truth at the time. Um, And I'll I'll give you some of these choice quotes, which shows that not only are they seriously in danger of losing this defamation case, uh, you know, which could be to the tune of billions of dollars, but just what they were saying also confirms they immediately responded to the pressure from these other two far-right networks that were, you know, they were worried were stealing their audience because they were just going way into the deep end of the fever swamps, the conspiracy theories. And Fox News' response was, let's not take them to, let them take our audience, so let's just talk more. That is even more insane and more ludicrous. And that's exactly what they did, even though they knew it was false. We have text from Tucker Carlson immediately telling his producers that Trump's lawyers, I caught him lying. They're lying. She's a bit nuts. Sorry, but she is. Uh, you have the chairman of Fox Corp, Rupert Murdoch, who I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, immediately recognizing that this was, quote unquote, really crazy stuff, terrible stuff damaging everybody, I fear. Uh, the reporter is talking about how dangerously insane this stuff was. Um, this was them basically admitting to each other, and now it's revealed now, uh, that they knew this was all insane, as the, in, in their own words. Um, BS in their own words. Mind-blowingly nuts in their own words. Uh, you know, F-word lunatics in their own words. Totally off the rails. I can speak for myself, and I think you and the folks over at uh, Media Matters for America and most of our listeners, we're all in favor of upholding and protecting the First Amendment to the Constitution and free speech in this country. But we have an example here of Fox News that has has really poisoned disinformation to the point where it played a, a, a critical role in a violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th and provoked other political violence across the country. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do we do about that? We want to protect free speech, but at the same time, the Constitution is not a suicide pact, and we don't want fire to be shattered in a crowded theater where it endangers lives. Of course, we agree with you completely that, you know, the First Amendment has a long and venerable history in this country. And in many respects, the First Amendment and just free speech in general uh, is something that is very unique to this country and for very good reason. Um, however, the First Amendment is, has never been absolute. You have to balance that against other constitutional rights and against other societal interests. And it was decided by the Supreme Court a long time ago that it is not the same thing 
uh, the traditional free speech protections as intentionally spreading disinformation and political disinformation. And I don't think anybody uh, would make the argument that, you know, the founders originally or the Supreme Court later when they were uh, analyzing the First Amendment were thinking about intentional disinformation, uh, weaponized propaganda. And that, unfortunately, is what uh, this right-wing media ecosystem has become. And we have seen the consequences. Uh, This was a false narrative, which literally led to an insurrection in our nation's capital in an attempt to overthrow the current government. That's the situation right now that Fox is, is dealing with, that there are parties to this this design and a very dangerous one, which the Supreme Court has never protected. That was Sergio Munoz, Media Matters for America's Vice President of Research and Policy. Learn more about the lawsuits against Fox News and what they reveal about the right-wing network by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Fifty years ago, on February 27, 1973, the American Indian Movement occupied Wounded Knee, a village on the Pine Ridge Oglala Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. This village was chosen by AIM activists because of its historical significance as the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890, when almost 300 mostly women, children, and elders were killed by the U.S. Army. The protest occupation was launched against both the corrupt tribal chairman and the historic and then current abuses by the U.S. government. This year, from February 24th to the 27th, activists are organizing a 50-year commemoration of the 71-day siege, which led to increased awareness of the oppression of Native people in the U.S. and some progressive change. Events include a recognition and award ceremony, a hand-drum competition, a poetry slam, round-table discussions, oral history of the women of Wounded Knee, and a concert finale. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Madonna Thunderhawk, an elder with decades of experience in the movement. As a member of the American Indian Movement, she was at Wounded Knee in 1973, at Standing Rock in 2016, and currently serves as the Cheyenne River organizer with the Lakota Law Project. Here she describes how things have and haven't changed for Native Americans over the past 50 years. Yeah, I see it very, very important of this this celebration we're having of the 50th for our people so we can pass this on to the the next generations and for the children, the the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of all of those that stood in those days back in 1973. It's important that We acknowledge that for our own people, because for our people, our history is very, very important. What happened, for example, at the Battle of Little Bighorn, you know, that history is is only a generation or so beyond us. It's it's real for us, even today. You know, different events are happening within those four days. And on the 27th, which which uh, would be the 25th of February, we celebrate that every year. We have a memorial for that every year. And that's where the people walk in from four directions. They walk into the village of Wounded Knee, and we have 
ceremony and there and then we we move on and have a celebration what was the specific issue that that brought people there and brought you know the the government down on on you it was not one specific issue we weren't a movement of young people or we didn't have it wasn't a one issue happening we were an american indian movement it was a movement of families and a movement of of our people at the time and basically the issues were the same again all starting with land but not only that the various treaty rights of the american indian uh, policies of the federal government to the bureau of indian affairs i mean you name it you know police brutality you know still going on today taking of children to the uh, child welfare services of the state of south dakota i mean you name it it's all still happening and i repeat that's what colonization means to us all of these issues never change they never changed. They're the same as they were when I was when I was young back in the 1940s to all the way up to the 60s and now 50 years later because we are land-based and we are colonized. Is, has anything gotten better or has it just gotten worse? No, it's gotten better for our people because we are more aware. We know now back in our day, for example, we didn't have Native American media, but nowadays we do. We have a whole generation of young people that are educated in the American system. You know, that we have many, many college graduates. I mean, you name it. We're able to understand and um, operate more in, in, in the mainstream American system. That's the difference that I see. And I look at it as from the standpoint of not so much, you know, what are like, oh, we still, of course, we still have health problems. We still have housing problems, those kinds of things. But I prefer to look at it in what the positive things that have happened for our people as we've advanced. And now we know how to deal with the social media. We know how to do that. Our young people know how to operate in bigger society outside of our, our communities. So that's what I see as a good thing. You know, there's a lot of sort of mass media that talks about President Biden's commitment to equity and justice for indigenous people. And he's done certain things like named the uh, head of the Interior Department the first time ever as an indigenous person. And do you feel like that represents any kind of progress or do you think that doesn't mean that much? Well, I think it's progress, yes. And especially a key position as, you know, Secretary of the Department of Interior, because that's where that's where our people are, are placed. You know, that's where we're put in that department, you know, along with the national parks and, you know, the endangered animals and stuff like that. Well, we're right in there with them, you know. And of course, it's 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 an amazing thing to happen that she was appointed, you know. But again, it's the American political system. Who knows what's going to happen in four years? That was Madonna Thunderhawk, Cheyenne River organizer with the Lakota Law Project. Learn more about the 50th anniversary of the Wounded Knee occupation and the American Indian movement by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org 
where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.